So many of you know that Jeremy and Amelie, or as Josh and Sarah like to call them, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy got married two weeks ago, three weeks ago, two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have medical reasons for not remembering, but Jeremy, this is not a good way to start it out. Okay. So, um... I was visiting with Amelie and Jeremy in my office a couple of days ago, and Jeremy makes this statement. He says, you know, in the last two weeks, not a day has gone by. Um, I wrote it down. How, how did he say it? Not a day has gone by without the stark realization that the Lord is for us. He's talking about they keep having every day these moments where it's obvious God is on their team. He's near to them. He's blessing them. The irony is that earlier in that day, I was visiting with another person who was in the opposite place, a place of desolation and darkness. This person I was with, his soul, his spirit were in turmoil and he was disturbed and restless and overwhelmed with temptation and he had no hope and no faith and there was no joy and no peace and quiet in his heart. And between him and God was a yawning chasm. And all he could sense from God was separation. Same day, same office, standing in the same place, just hours apart. In the exact opposite state of Amelie and Jeremy. I mean, Amelie and Jeremy are in this incredible season right now where their souls are inflamed with love for God. And everywhere they look, they see the Creator. Have you been in those places before? Where everything that happens, you see God's hand in it. And their faith is growing and their hope is increasing and there's love and joy and peace in their heart. Consolation and desolation. In the early 17th century, that's what St. Ignatius called these two states, these two spiritual seasons. And and he he was a master of spiritual direction. He invented 40-day retreats as a way to help people discern their vocation. And he would lead people on these retreats, you know, so many hundreds of years ago. And he noticed that Christians go through these two seasons, seasons of consolation and seasons of desolation. Now, we've heard five short verses from Mark's gospel. And and in these verses, we see that Christ himself went through both seasons back to back. Look with me if you have your Bible in Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. If you need to use your table of contents to find Mark, that's fine. Um, I encourage you. If you have a Bible, to to bring one with you to church. If you don't, any hotel you go to, there's one for you to take right in the um, little. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, With you, I am well pleased. Now look, you need to learn to read the Bible with your imagination because God comes to us in our imagination. The Bible calls it our heart. That's where God meets us. And you need to see this scene 
in your mind's eye. There's Jesus. He's lowered in the water. Now, it's different than the woodcut, right? In, in, in Mark's account of it, he's lowered. And as he's coming up out of the water, what happens? Can you see it? The, the, the heavens. Now, your Bible might translate it different than mine. But literally, the language that it was originally written in, the heavens are torn. They're rent. They're ripped apart. And then the Spirit of God, as Jesus is coming up, it's, it's, in Greek, it's the same word with a different preposition. As Jesus is coming up, the Spirit is coming down. And it's this incredible movement. Jesus coming up, the heavens are being ripped open, the Spirit is coming down, and the voice of God is coming down. And, he, and, and it's God saying to Jesus, You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now, what we see here is that the whole cosmos is being impacted by Jesus' act of humility. It's not that there was a gentle tear in the fabric of the universe. It was ripped open. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is a huge um, kind of symbolic experience that the Hebrews would have, the Jewish people would have seen so much going on here because of the stories they had been told from their childhood. You see, when we go back into the biblical roots, there are two important things in this scene for our congregation today. First of all, in the Old Testament, we're told very clearly that sin separates us from God. That sin results in a huge chasm, a separation, a um, canyon, a gulf that's uncrossable between us and God. And it was so great. In Israel's life, that in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, Israel cries out, Oh, Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That was one of their most famous prayers. And here we see God answering Israel's prayer. It's the same verb. The Israelites at this time read a Greek version of the Old Testament. And in their version of the Old Testament, it's the same word for tearing the heavens. That's what Mark said is going on. God is answering your prayer. And this verb only shows up one more time in Mark's gospel. Here at the beginning at the baptism. And does anybody know? It's at the end when Christ is being crucified. And the centurion says, surely you're the son of God. In that moment, does anybody know this part of the story? It says the curtain in the temple, it's the only other time Mark uses that verb, was torn asunder. What is Mark showing us? He's showing us that in this moment, Jesus is beginning the work that he will complete at his crucifixion of spanning the gap, this incredible chasm that our sin creates and separates us from God. How does he span that gap? God himself comes down. He crosses the gap. He comes to us. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to us. And what happens? God does it. He answers the prayer in the person of Jesus. But there's something else going on here. Not just that at his baptism and life and death that God is the reconciliation of God in humans is, is happening. But this whole issue of the opening of heaven. Now, because you've been programmed with a different myth, with a different set of stories than the Jews were. You see, the Jews grew up with a whole canon of stories that convinced them heaven was not far off. 
Heaven was just another dimension of this reality. They never would have thought about heaven being out there somewhere. So when, when they were told to pray, our Father who aren't in heaven, they never translated that to mean God is far away. They automatically knew because of the DNA of their imagination. It meant, my God who's here, very close to me, but I can't see you because you're in another dimension. So when the heavens are opened, it doesn't mean that a door 2,000 miles out in the universe cracks open a little bit. No, it's this idea that an invisible curtain right in front of us is suddenly pulled back so that, so that instead of the trees and the flowers and the buildings, or in Jesus' case, the river and the sandy desert and the crowds, that all of the sudden an unnoticed curtain is pulled back and we are standing in the presence of the greater reality that was there all along. That's what's happening with Jeremy and Amelie right now. On regular occasions, they are sensing God is near. The curtain is opening. Now, the whole Trinity is wrapped up in this thing, right? You've got the Son, you've got the Spirit, you've got the Father. The whole Trinity is here. And God the Father, in this incredible moment of familial love, Puts a stamp of approval on Jesus and on Jesus and on his mission. And he delights in his son. Now, this is the spiritual state that St. Ignatius called consolation. It's when you hear God's voice and you're filled with love for your creator. And everywhere you turn, the, the heavens are being opened and you're seeing the reality that in faith you've always known is there. But God leads you into these seasons where he lets your senses become aware of this reality. And what happens next? Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Just like Adam and Eve. Driven out of the presence of God. Out of the garden into the wilderness. Just like the nation of Israel. How many days is Jesus in the wilderness? Forty. Just like for the nation of Israel when Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud descended on the mountain and, and Moses was in the presence of God and the people were down by themselves and they couldn't see God. Moses was with God and they felt this yawning chasm of separation and so they made an idol because they needed God to be near. So they wanted something they could see and feel and taste and touch and they made a golden calf. And then again, for 40 days that happened. Same number of days. And then again, they go into the wilderness for 40 years. You see, in Scripture, the desert is the place of evil. It's the realm of evil powers. This is not a spiritual retreat. This is not Jesus pulling aside to get quiet with God. This is a brutal battle in the teeth of evil. This is, this, is, this is no easy place. It's not a spiritual, carefree oasis. This wilderness is dangerous. This is the place of temptation and testing. And sure enough, Satan attacks him and tempts him. 
And he faces the same decision that Adam and Eve faced and failed and that Israel faced and failed when they were in the desert, in the wilderness. But Jesus, even though he now is reliving the life of Israel, Jesus resists the temptation. He resists Satan and he stands fast in his determination to please the Father and to be on the mission that the Father has for him. And what we see here is that at his baptism, beginning his ministry, the Spirit deliberately drives Jesus into Satan's territory. And you can't miss that, right? The Spirit drove him. I mean, can you imagine coming up out of the water and the voice from heaven and the Spirit descending on you? When the Spirit descends on you, what do you want to do? Enjoy it? Stay there a while? But when the Spirit descends on Jesus, what does He do to Jesus? He pushes Him into Satan's territory. Why? Because Jesus came into this world to do battle against Satan. Jesus is beginning His assault on the powers of evil. Jesus is looking for a fight. And He gets it. Now look at verse 13. The angels are there with Him. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were with him, ministering to him. But notice, they do not keep him from Satan. I mean, this is remarkable, right? They don't keep him from Satan just like they will not keep him from suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane when he begs the Father to let that be true. And just like they will not keep him from the cross. What are they doing? They are there to assure him that his father, his beloved father, is watching over him. That his beloved father is there with him, loving him, acting through him, pouring out his spirit on him. But it's interesting, we do not know if he sees the angels. We don't know. It's ambiguous if he's even aware that they're ministering to him. It's a lonely and tempting and trying place to be in desolation. And most of the time, you don't see God in seasons of desolation. This is Christ on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is desolation. This is when all of your senses are telling you God is not near. He does not love you. He has abandoned you. Now, I started by telling you of the consolation and desolation that are going on within our own congregation right now. Now, why did I start a sermon about a unique event in the history of the universe? I mean, those animals that are there, it's an odd little detail for Mark to include. He's ambiguous about that. Are these animals angry animals? Are they a part of the attack? You know, do, or in your mind's eye, are you seeing them as these vicious animals? Or is it, a, is it a symbolic glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth when the lion will lay down with the lamb and there's a reconciliation? What, is this the new heavens and the new earth being, beginning to be birthed? We, we don't know. Mark is being ambiguous here. And that's how desolation is. It's very ambiguous. It's very difficult. 
And I started this sermon talking about two people in our congregation. Why? What, what, do, what do Jeremy and Amelie and this other person have to do with this unique event in the life of Jesus 2,000 years ago? Well, in order to show you the connection, we've got to go back and pick up something that I deliberately overlooked. Look at chapter 8. I mean, chapter 1, verse 8. I have baptized you with water. This is John talking to the crowds. But he, talking about Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the verse immediately before verse 9. Now, you've got to know that when the New Testament was originally written, there weren't little handy little paragraph headers and verses and all. That would have been, you would have just kept reading. You would have read 8 and immediately read 9. So John is saying to the crowds, look, you got to know that this baptism I'm doing, it's no match for the baptism he's going to do. And then the very next verse says, and Jesus comes and gets baptized. Now that's weird. If, if Jesus is going to give such an exalted baptism, John's baptism doesn't even hold a candle to it. Why is Jesus then putting himself in this lowly, humble state of being the penitent, the baptized one? And, and furthermore, look back at verse 4. John appeared in... Um, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you should have read verse 4, and then you get to verse 9, and you say, well, if Jesus is getting baptized, what's ironic about that? He hasn't sinned. The whole New Testament proclaims over and over and over that Jesus is sinless. Listen to this verse. It's out of a letter Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He had never sinned. So why his baptism? Now, this is what I mean by you've got to engage your imagination when you read the Bible. You've got to ask that question. Mark is provoking you to ask it by putting verse 4 and verse 8 before verse 9. He's trying to push you into thinking about this and engaging. Why is Jesus getting baptized? And the answer is, Because of his total solidarity with sinful humanity. Listen again to the verse from 2 Corinthians. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He has not sinned. But in this moment he is entering into this ministry where he takes the sin of the world on himself. He is in total solidarity with sinful humanity. Humanity. And here, leading all the way to the cross. Look, his immersion into the water is not just a glorious moment of baptism. It's also a symbol, a foreshadowing. What else is going to kill him and lower him down? The sin of the world. It's a symbol of his death. In fact, in a few chapters, Jesus is talking about his impending crucifixion. And he calls it a baptism. So Jesus doesn't stand apart from us. In this moment when God is reconciling us to himself, he does it by becoming one of us in every sense. He's standing in solidarity with us, get this, under the just judgment of God. Now, what I'm saying is that in his baptism, just like in his death, we see the brutal reality of our sin and that it deserves judgment. But here's the amazing fact. Again, the passage from 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that 
in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's an incredible exchange. Right? That's an exchange. He becomes sin who knows no sin so that we can become his righteousness. We, in, in other words, Jesus became what we are in order that we might become what he is. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah represents his people. Why? So that we can become what he is. Another way to say this is to recognize that any early Christian reading this passage of Scripture would have, of course, believed that at their own baptism, the curtain had been drawn back and God the Father had said to them, you are my dear, dear child. And I am pleased with you. Any early Christian reading Mark's gospel would have seen Jesus' solidarity with humanity as an exchange. And then they would have learned to read their baptism into this baptism. And they would have learned that the brutal, true reality, if you could have unzipped the curtain when they were baptized, was that the heavens were opened. And in that moment, God himself took them and made them his child. And put his stamp of approval on their life. And said to them. My dear, dear child. I love you. And I am pleased with you. Now look. So much about learning to live the Christian life. Is about learning to let that reality be what fuels your imagination. See, so many of us, our imagination is more programmed by the rejection that we've experienced, by the stories that we sink into our lives, by what we watch on TV and read and look at in magazines. But being a Christian is about reprogramming your imagination. There are seasons, like Jeremy and Amelie are going through, seasons of consolation. When the curtain is drawn back and we see and heal, hear what is really going on. And in those times, when you can hear the heavenly voice, when you can see the normally hidden hand of God, it's crucial in seasons of consolation that you do two things. Now, if you're a note taker, I encourage you to jot this down. It's so important in seasons of consolation. Amelie and Jeremy, right now for you. And for everyone in this room going through that state. Number one, when you're in a state of consolation, you need to think about the fact that one day you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I'm not saying be morose and, oh, yeah, it's good now, but it's going to get bad. <laughs> I'm saying you, you, in seasons of consolation, you've got to store up strength for the time of desolation. It's important in those 
great moments where you see God everywhere, that at some point along the way you stop and think and consider how you're going to behave when it's not like this. Secondly, in the good times, when you sense the joy and nearness of God, you need to humble yourself. You need to lower yourself as much as possible. And you need to remember how little you are. And you need to remember how hard it is to trust God when God is not so near. You see, because there are people who in seasons of consolation forget that it's the grace of God's nearness that's making it so easy. You see, right? All of a sudden, you might think that because you're doing all your spiritual P's and Q's, you're okay. And that's why it's easy. No, in a season of consolation, you humble yourself, you make yourself little, and you remember how, how hard it is to trust and love and hope in the dark and lonely times. And you remember that this moment of consolation is not your achievement. It is God's grace. Jesus didn't rend the heavens and pull God down. And neither can you. In those times of desolation, you need to consider how you will conduct yourself. In the times of consolation, you need to consider how you conduct yourself when you go through desolation. And you need to humble yourself, remembering how little you can do when you're left to your own recourse. Because you will endure desolation. Why? Why does that happen? Why, why do we end up in the desert? Well, when, when we look in Scripture, we see that there are three primary reasons people end up in the desert. Number one, because of laziness. When we are lazy and slothful and we are negligent in our pursuit of holiness, when we take the consolation for granted and we stop pursuing God, with a vigor and a discipline and a dedication, when we fail to tend diligently to our spiritual life, consolation is taken from us. That's one reason in Scripture we see some people in the state of desolation. It's entirely their fault. And then there are times when it's not your fault. When the Spirit of God pushes you there. And he's testing you to see how much you will continue to serve him and praise him when there is no immediate feedback. This is Job, right? It's a testing of your heart to help you see, will you praise God when there's nothing in return? Will you love God when, he, when all your senses are telling you he's not loving you? Will you praise him when all of your senses are telling you he's not hearing your praises? Will you keep worshiping when he's not near? When worship is dry? When praying is like chopping wood for the 10,000th time? When it's a chore and a labor? It's a test to see, will you indeed serve and love God for no other reason then he is God. Now a third reason, a third of the primary reasons that we see people end up in the desert in Scripture is there are times when God is showing us something about ourselves. When he's showing us that all of our love for him and all of our devotion and all of our joy and our hope are not of ourselves. They're a gift from him. What I'm saying is that sometimes 
Desolation is a gift. It's a gift that helps us to resist the sin of pride. Because some people think when they're in seasons of consolation and they're filled with love and joy and hope and peace, they think that it is because of themselves. But the seasons of desolation give us a true reading of what life is like in our own hearts when God is not near. The rending of heaven was a gift of God to Jesus. Now in all three, one of the things we see in scripture and as I interact with people who are walking through these seasons, whatever reason a person is in desolation, God is at work. And usually it's at a far deeper than conscious level. Usually in desolation, God is doing things in us that we do not know. And usually we never know. You don't get through a season of desolation and look back most of the time and say, oh, that's why. See, we've got this incredible idolatrous need to know why in order to justify. But we normally, the normal issue is that you don't know the deep work of God in your heart in the desert. It's so deep, you don't even register it on the radar of your senses. Now, when you're there, when you're in desolation, when you're in the dark and lonely days, three things I encourage you to do. Number one, don't make any big decisions. Because your discerner is broken. Because you are not in the right state of mind. Don't quit your job. (laughs) Divorce your spouse. Buy a new house. You need to remain firm and constant in the decisions that you made in the state of consolation. I mean, that's what was going on with Jesus. What was Satan saying to Jesus? Oh, those decisions you just made about going on mission for God and being the son of God. Look, there's other ways to accomplish this. You need to know that the spirit you're hearing from the most in a season of desolation is not the spirit of God. When you're in, a se- when you're in that place, Satan is masquerading as an angel of light. He's attempting to guide you and to counsel you. And listen, Ignatius said, following his counsel, you can never find the right way to a decision. This was Ignatius' great insight. Do not make big decisions in these seasons because you're in the realm of Satan. Your discerner is broken. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. What was Satan doing? He was masquerading as his friend, trying to get him to change his his, um, mission, quoting scripture to him, counseling him. Number two, in the season of desolation, you need to intensify your spiritual disciplines. A friend of mine says when it's hardest to pray, you should pray the hardest. In a season of desolation, you need to read the Bible. Look, when God is not there and every page is dry, you better read like your soul depends on it. And when your prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing off and God is 10 million miles away, the just shall live by faith. You do it in faith. 
Even when all your senses are telling you it's not happening, in faith you hold the line. You pray harder. You read scripture. You meditate. You confess your sins. This is a, cru- a critical thing to do. So important in seasons of desolation is confession. Confess your sins. Worship. Number three. Final practical thing I would encourage you with in times of desolation is remember that enough grace is available for you to withstand the enemy. Do not blame your failure on the apparent absence of God because the true reality is that the angels are there ministering to you whether you know it or not. And God promises us that you will not go through any temptation, that He does not give you the grace to withstand. See, don't get into the desert and start blaming God for your wickedness. You must trust God. You must believe that the angels are there, that enough grace is there, that the cause of every sin is inside ourselves, not outside ourselves. You're not a victim in the desert. You're still the perpetrator. You see, so much of the Christian life is about what your imagination tells you is the greater reality. Now, at the end of the day, so much of the Christian life is really wrapped up in these five verses. You see, if you imagine that our God is a bully, an angry, threatening parent ready to yell at you and to slam the door on you and to kick you out onto the street because you haven't made a good enough grade then when you get in the desert, if that's what your imagination has been programmed with, if that's what you have allowed into the DNA of your life, when you get into the desert, you will fail. But the reason Jesus made it through the desert was because he believed in the greater reality he experienced in the time of consolation. That his father loved him before he ever did his mission. Before he ever did the perfect stuff, the father said, you're my beloved and I'm pleased with you. What, What is ingrained in the circuits of your imagination? At your baptism, what really happened? You know what really happened? It doesn't matter if you were baptized in a Baptist church or a Catholic church or an Anglican church as an infant or as a full-grown adult, it doesn't matter when or where. When you were baptized into Christ, the heavens were torn open. And God looked at you and said, My dear, dear child, I am pleased with you. And making it through the desert depends on if that dominates your imagination. Or not? Is it, is it the case for you? I mean, that's why we come to worship every week and hear sermons preached every week. What are you doing? We're trying to compete with all the stuff you're watching on TV and magazines. We're, trying to, we're telling a different story. We're telling the true story every week in our liturgy and all this stuff we're standing and sitting and doing and saying and the teaching of Scripture. Every week we're being washed over by the true story, the greater reality. Will you learn to look at your life and to see and hear in it the heavenly vision, the heavenly voice? 
Will you dare to believe these words were spoken to you? All of the New Testament says that when we're baptized into Christ, we are given the privilege of becoming his brother, a child of God. We get access to that family relationship. Will you dare to believe that? Let's pray.